The true picture of the past flits by. The past can be seized only as an image which flashes up at the instant when it can be recognized and is never seen again. Walter Benjamin Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in this week and uh, listening to the episode. Um, I have been, you know, pretty pleased with the reception to the bonus episode. I know it's kind of a niche novel, uh, but it seems like it's been, you know, fairly well received, uh, especially on YouTube. But, um, yeah, so thank you all for tuning in on that. Uh, but before we return to our, uh, our I guess, our regular um, focus and uh, subject for this for this season, uh, I do have some feedback I wanted to go over, and it was one that I had kind of thought that would come up um, based on our last regular episode, and it's one I kind of like, as soon as I recorded it, I was like, eh, I, I probably could have done that better. So it, it was questions I had about photo-semantic interpretation of Zhejiang, and um, I, I'm not, again, I'm not surprised by, by that at all. Uh, I'm not a linguist, and I probably focus too much on trying to explain the theory very poorly, quite frankly, in my opinion, and not just breaking down the specific theory regarding the name uh, clearer. So I'm going to try and be a bit clearer and more focused. So the characters combined for the Zhe River province uh, were water, shui, and fold, zhe. The semantic part of the translation is shui. Uh, this is the essence of the combined character uh, water, liquid, river. The phonetic character is zhe. Uh, this means that the sound that should be made uh, when speaking it. So the original old Yua word for the river probably sounded extremely close to zhe, or at least it sounded close to the Chinese people that were hearing and then adapting it at that time. So that they probably thought that the UA were saying a word close to their word, zhe, which meant fold. So, however, as the old UA uh, language is extinct, it's impossible to truly know for sure. So I hope that explanation is a little clearer. And I do thank you guys for bearing with me, and I hope I didn't kind of screw up that episode for you. So, uh, sorry I got lost in explaining the theory and not just talking about the name. Now, let's go ahead and continue to our new material. Uh, and we're shifting from what is now southern China, and we're going to begin to begin being focused on the early populations that would make up the primary for foundations of Chinese civilization. Uh, now, for most of the 19th and early to mid 20th century, the most popular ideas and theories about the development of agriculture and cities and civilization was that they arose in one place and spread from there. Though there were always those who contended that this probably happened in like one or two areas around the same time frame. But even those people in favor of a more widespread origin contended that there were probably only two or three sites or cultures 
in the origin points that then spread out, uh, taking their knowledge and skills with them. Now, as we have seen in our prior episodes, this idea is being tested more and more as well. Uh, with older, more widespread sites and cultures showing incipient agricultural practices, various different types of uh, proto-animal domestication, uh, different skills that would be involved in tool making, that kind of thing. And Chinese history seemed to follow the traditional view more closely than other places. Um, for a long time, popular history, myths, archaeology, and oral traditions uh, among the Chinese people themselves tended to all support a single group being responsible for the emergence of the proto-Chinese culture. However, as the Chinese government has gotten over their rabid and virulent hate of their dynastic past and wanting to establish and promote a kind of national exceptionalism, not to mention, you know, reestablishing a unifying national idea that goes beyond mere politics, they've begun to support more and more archaeological digs in their country. And this has illuminated more and more of China's history and prehistory. And also, while doing this, has complicated their traditional narrative of the latter. So we see a number of disparate groups spread in and around China's two largest river systems and see a number of distinct Neolithic groups begin to emerge. Now, when talking about these groups, I will be using the term culture, which just know that this is a material designation, what the connection or disconnection from peoples occupying the same sites from one century to the next is impossible to truly say, uh, much less what their relations may have been with contemporary neighbors. All that can really be said is that the tools found with these peoples were developed and adapted to help them survive in you know, a very hostile world and environment. Now, one of the oldest and best known of these so-called cultures is known as the Nanjuangto culture. And again, I do apologize if I'm butchering the pronunciation for this for any Chinese-speaking listeners. Uh, this site was discovered in 1986 and has several layers showing various times of occupation and use. Uh, the final layers show a group becoming distinctive from other Paleolithic hunter-gatherer sites um, with a mix of these late Paleolithic tools and early Neolithic toolkits beginning around 500 years before our current time frame. So 8,500 BC. Um, the name of the site means South Head Village or South Chief Village. Uh, the type site of this group uh, was found in a peat bog near a lake called Bayong. Uh, the name can be translated several ways, but the one I saw most often was White Sea Lake. Uh, this is inside the Chinese province of Hebei, or Hebei, or Hebei. Its name has the Chinese character for the character He, which is used in Wang He, which is the Yellow River, and Bei, which means north. So, 
The province means north of the Yellow River. So very simple translation. Now this culture had domesticated dogs and they had them very early. Um, I mentioned that the last layer of occupation, um, you know, starting around 8,500 BC, there was a period around 10,000 to around, I believe, 9,000 uh, where there were, you know, just hunter-gatherers there, and those people appeared to have dogs or at least to have hunted wild canids at the very least. But by the time of our t- you know, season uh, that we're currently covering, they definitely had domesticated dog breeds. Uh, this culture also harvested wild millet, and they had pottery, which again arose in East Asia uh, very, very early on, as we've talked about uh, last couple of episodes, and of course uh, in the last season that we were here as well. Um, and these pots were useful for cooking. Uh, nuts were still a major part of the diet for um, any people living in this region. And a lot of those nuts have uh, tannins, which if you eat a large amount of, are going to poison you. So boiling these nuts helps diminish and remove the tannins from them. So that makes them much safer to eat. Not to mention that uh, cooking food uh, helps, you know, with digestion. You use less energy. It's healthier and and gives you more uh, beneficial nutrients. So um, that probably helped people in this area very early on. Uh, Let's see. Where are we in my notes? Ah, so... Uh, Now, the millet here is listed in some places as being domesticated strains, but I also read more sources calling it wild or semi-domesticated. And it's not easy to tell because most of what has been found were remnants of processed kernels ground with these large stone grinders, uh, a flat surface, uh, and then they had another smaller flat rock that they would kind of uh, run over the kernels that were on, you know, these larger flat stones. Um, <clears throat> so, again, it's it's pretty debated, you know, is this wild, is this domestic? Uh, I'm willing to bet that towards the end, there probably were what we might consider true domestic strains, but they would still be mixed in with a majority wild or semi-wild cousins. Uh, Of course, because we see this Neolithic toolkit, smaller specialized tools and blades uh, are appearing. Uh, And someone had to ask what bladelets technically are. Uh, So those are blades that are uh, longer than they are wider. You know, a lot of early... Chulian hand axes, things like that. They're they basically they take up your whole hand. The blade is made up by the entire uh, surface or edge. It, it the entire tool itself is almost a blade. A blade lid is very narrow, or it can be narrow or very thin at least. Uh, that's what we mean when we say blade lid. Um. Now, uh, so. 
but these are not just stone tools that we see being made into bladelets. They're also bone and antler as well. Wild deer, very important part of the diet at this point in time in East Asia. Uh, so, you know, having an antler tool was probably something that someone was very proud of because you probably had to hunt the deer to obtain the antler. Uh, now, uh, another thing that has been found here is charcoal. Uh, now, I don't recall mentioning charcoal before, but humans obviously have been making it for a very long time, and I just lumped it into fuel for fire and material, um, things like that. I've mentioned you know, fire being a very essential element of human survival, and you know, I, I think people can generally figure out what can be set on fire. But charcoal, of course, is something um, that I think the earliest example of that we have is around 30,000 years ago. Uh, and that's, of course, just the only physical example. Um, it was probably used in cave paintings. Of course, anything that uses uh, dark black was probably made with charcoal, and I think that has been proven in a number of places, though some places there is, of course, no way to tell for sure. But... Um, so how long exactly we've been making charcoal is impossible to say, but I think it's probably close to almost our entire history, if not our entire history. Um, and as I said, charcoal can be made from a lot of different material in a lot of different ways. And one of those ways is to, you know, kind of burn it and process it from peat from bogs. So this may be why this site was chosen for use. Um, you know, it's an ectone, it's near, uh, water sources, uh, but it's also close to other areas with, uh, uh, more variety, uh, plains, forests, which were probably much more, um, widespread at this point. And I'll go more into that later. So, you know, this being an excellent source of peat to make charcoal, this might have been something they were trading, um, you know, for nearby groups, for, you know, other materials, perhaps stone a little bit further to the north or the west. Now, another factor is how sedentary this culture truly was is hard to say. Uh, but we do begin to see more formalized burial practices and an increased number of them, which is something that is generally seen in other regions as sedentary, sedentary, uh, Sedentarism spreads. <laughs> um, now, um, this site lasts until about uh, 7700 BC, so 7700 BC, BCE. Uh, so, good chunk of the start of our timeline, uh, about 300 years. And after that, this is a permanent abandonment. Um, I had mentioned before, you know, we have evidence from earlier layers that there were people, you know, some, they were between 10,000 to 9,000, 9,200, uh, something like that. And then there were even older groups using it before that. Um, about 1,200 years, generally speaking, in each, um, 
uh, each phase. But again, after 7,700, it's abandoned completely. It's never used. Now, why it was permanently deserted, it, it's, it's very hard to say for sure. Uh, but I think it's most likely a mix of environmental and geographic changes. Um, this part of China, and indeed a lot of the land north of the Yangtze River, uh, was being, you know, was going through like massive climatic shifts. Um, you know, you have, I think it basically until the end of the Younger Dryas, as far north as modern Beijing, uh, which, you know, it's, it's, it's higher up than you might expect on the latitude longitude type map grid but it's still you know fairly warm uh at least these days but at, at this point of time it may have been buried under a you know a permafrost um and after the younger dryest ended that's you know uh yeah there's evidence of wild swings of precipitation levels so um meaning that middle and northern china uh, probably saw shifts between Swamplands, forests, and grasslands all expanding wildly from century to century, you know, overtaking each other, sometimes the swamplands taking up more space, sometimes the forest overcoming the grasslands, and then the grasslands replacing the forest, vice versa. Uh, so it, it's this is a something that's going on probably until around 7,000 BCE uh, before it begins to stabilize. And even then, it probably wouldn't even reach close to like the modern climate until after 6,000 BC, so right at the end of our um, episode. Um, now, this wasn't a major issue to the south and the places we talked about in the last couple of episodes. Uh, the worst that region saw that it might have been, you know, three to five degrees cooler on average into, you know, on average uh, than it is what, you know, today. Um, but that still puts the region, you know, in the tropical or subtropical range they're in today. So, it, you know, the environment would still be very similar to what it is now. Um of course, you're also going to see rising sea levels uh, getting very close to what they are in the modern day. So this is also, you know, causing or exacerbating, you know, these other difficulties. Um, and of course, these, uh, you know, these are affecting kind of the inflows of the Yangtze and the Huanghe and the, you know, the Huanghe or the Yellow River is known as China's sorrow for frequently and violently changing course. Um, the Yangtze also shares tra this trait to some extent, um, though I think it is much less frequent. Um, that does not mean that it is any uh, safer or easier to control or live at at that point in time. Uh, now, in China, we see evidence that... Um, these groups that are transitioning to a sedentary Neolithic kind of agriculture or semi-agricultural lifestyle, uh, they begin to put strain on local resources like their earlier, you know, purely hunter-gatherer ancestors, like all hunter-gatherers do after a period of time. But 
what these groups in China appeared to have been doing is that they were sending small bands further and further away to areas with the resources that they were lacking while a bulk of their population concentrated on tending wild or semi-wild domesticated plants, uh, making sure they grew again uh, quicker. Uh, And it's possible that they were also um, in the process of domesticating uh, wild pigs or boars. Um, This East Asia is one of the regions where this is believed to have happened earliest, uh, and this is probably something that a lot of different groups are trying their hands at. Uh, and of course you still have your, your good old hunting parties. And I'll go into this in greater detail when we talk about, um, the, uh, urbanization episode I'm planning, but, you know, with more, with a higher percentage of your group or your band or your tribe or your family being sedentary for longer, um, this, of course, gives women the opportunity, um, or at least, if not the opportunity, then at least make it more conducive for them to give birth more often. Uh, with less movement, you don't have to worry about spacing your children out quite as much. Uh, but again, we'll get into more details on that and theories about urbanization and population changing uh, at that time. And uh, I should point out that there are a number of sites in uh, Nanjuo, uh, uh, aside from Nanjuangto, um, some further to the west uh, towards the mountains, uh, some uh, in that kind of middle period or middle portion of the um, the Wangge. Uh, there are a number of sites similar to this, although I believe Nanjiang Tuo is still the one that has the uh, the first and oldest evidence of this Neolithic or proto-Neolithic lifestyle. Um, I think the other sites are very similar to uh, those earlier layers of Nanjiang Tuo. Um, of course, it's very possible that I'm wrong. There are a bunch of articles about this in Chinese that I have. Uh, I am not equipped to properly translate. Um, but most of those sites uh, that share these uh, the, the Paleolithic hunter-gatherer lifestyle um, with the early elements of Nanjuangto, I believe all of those, um, with very few exceptions possibly, uh, are abandoned right around 7,000 B.C., Now, um, eventually, though, most of those older sites, again, are deserted, 75 to 7,000 B.C., somewhere in that time frame. There was probably uh, a widespread drought or disaster that caused um, the more sedentary lifestyle uh, to be abandoned due to lack of experience and understanding of crop management. Uh, It's also possible that... uh, 
there may have been a, a big flood or numerous floods due to the changing precipitation. Uh, the East Asian monsoon becomes more regular and begins to hit kind of that middle to upper part of uh, China or modern China today that it probably wasn't getting that far uh, inland or that far north uh, prior to this point. Um, and that could have led to, uh, you know, again, a number of uh, kind of crisis points causing these sites to be abandoned or make them less uh, viable. Or it may have made other sites more viable possibly too. It's possible there wasn't a big disaster. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me either if that um, we didn't see uh, some uh, or that there might have been some sites that have still not been discovered that are more similar to Nan Zhuang Tou. Um, you know, these floods or disasters maybe landslides, things like that could have also buried uh, similar groups uh, as well. Um, but uh, around a thousand, anywhere between a thousand to five hundred years later, uh, we see a, a number uh, and much more widespread Neolithic sites begin to emerge. Uh, they occupy um, both uh, the upper and middle parts of the Yellow and the um, uh, Yangtze River. Uh, and I think what we'll do is probably go over that um, in the next episode. I think, let's check. Yeah, it's, it's been about 20, 25 minutes. Um, I think this is a solid length. Um, I didn't have much time to work this week and, and make my notes uh, because of uh, I didn't get back until middle of the week from uh, the holiday uh, and it, that, that bonus episode actually took a lot longer than I, I thought it would take to record. So uh, I think the probably the easiest way to do it is um, we'll call the episode here. And next week, we will go over the numerous um, uh, Neolithic sites that emerge after the kind of the mid or late 7000s B.C. Uh, and a number of these places will will return to uh, once uh, once we get to our next season, uh, because some of these sites and material cultures are yeah they will continue, and they will be again they'll they'll be part of the foundation of what will become Chinese civilization. Uh, so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about how. Um, Instead of maybe one or two, you know, fairly close and pro, you know, in proximity groups, there's actually probably there's still probably two or three main groups, uh, but they're not in isolation from each other. They are in contact, probably with each other, or at the very least, some smaller regional groups that are between. So there's probably a sharing or um, maybe a kind of inter-struggle um, between these various uh, factions. And that some of that might even show up in Chinese mythology, or at least the echoes or the distant remembrances of these um, uh, interactions between various groups uh, might show up. Um, but that'll probably, we probably won't get the Chinese mythology until 
next season, the very basis for it at least, um, which is something we don't deal with in the West here almost at all. We only know some of the bigger, um, just very broad, more child, um, you know, more children uh, myth, um, or myths more geared towards like, you know, children like uh, like some of the uh, more... Um, edited Greek myths, I guess, uh, that you might read out of a bedtime story or something like that. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I think probably at least one to two episodes to talk about those groups. If I can't finish them next week, uh, we'll probably do another kind of finish up and then we'll kind of do like that overview I've been promising, you know, to talk about who the big groups are and where they were and how they interacted and will eventually evolve in this area during, I guess, our, our I guess our next time kind of focus. So, um, yeah. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this week. Uh, I hope uh, I helped uh, or better explained uh, the Zhejiang uh, explanation or theory a little bit more. Um, if you have any questions or feedback for me for this week or any of my prior episodes, um, please feel free to reach me um, via email at waradrevpod at gmail.com. You can direct message me on Twitter. Uh, my DMs are open there. Uh, you can also comment on any of my YouTube videos. Um, and if you haven't uh, subscribed there or anywhere, please do uh, like you know, auto download, whatever you want to do, however you uh, would like to support the show, I would appreciate it very much. Um, I have done a little bit of streaming this past week. Um, I know I, I think I'd mentioned that I had done like part one of a little playthrough of um, a game uh, set during uh, the 10,000 BC period, uh, and I did another part of that uh, last week. Uh, it did get age restricted, so if you are subscribed on YouTube, but you have like uh, you know uh, content controls for like you know for mature audiences or kids, it may not have popped up on your feed. But you can find that video, of course, if you are of age and search for it. Um, but yeah, uh, thank you all again for listening. I hope you have had a good week, and that you will have a good week going forward. Thank you all. Have a good night. Goodbye.